This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1... You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. A lot to do, as always. Now, uh, I'm here in San Diego, so I want to do a, a segment or two a little later about the uh, the Oroville Dam. Have you heard of this? This is made national news, I believe, right? It's. I don't really want to talk about the Oroville Dam. It's more of a metaphor for California and how poorly run this state is. You've probably heard that we're in a drought in California. We're not. Um, for every, first of all, 50 of the state's 58 counties are in flood warnings, have been for about a month or so. Um, but not only that, for every gallon of water that is pumped from the Delta, from our water storage to people, three and a half gallons are pumped into the ocean. California has plenty of water. It's just that our politicians in Sacramento have a ideology that leads them to, to not let us use it. They don't want us to have the water. They don't want us to have more electricity. They don't want us to have more roads. They're purposefully denying us these things. Uh, and that's what we will talk about a little later. But I want to start here because last week, I think it was a little later in the show, we uh, did a segment about how to change people's minds on issues. And I got this note from Setson on Facebook. He said, hey, Mike, well, it happened to me tonight. I ended up in that conversation of hardened progressive versus hardened conservative, and I tried to use the techniques you shared, and I failed miserably. It melted down into an emotional debate so quickly I had to pull the ripcord. I'd be so grateful for more helpful tips on how to get this conversation rekindled. Uh, Stetson, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate the attempt. So I've been working on this last couple months, really, on getting this process down um, and, and making it as clear as possible because it is a process. I guess it started with Thanksgiving. You know, We did the, the classic segment on how to talk to your progressive family members. And one of the pieces of advice, as you will remember, is just know that you're not going to change anyone's mind around the Thanksgiving dinner table. It's just, it's not going to happen. It's, it's almost impossible to change someone's mind. Why? Because they have to want their mind to be changed. 
Now, there are circumstances, I'm sure, like Paul, who dedicated his life to killing Christians and then sees Jesus and, and flips, converts right there on the spot. Uh, but that, that almost never happens. So, so really just free yourself of the burden of trying to convert someone in one conversation. It just doesn't work like that. I don't mean to be defeatist, right? I'm not, I'm not telling you to give up. Just manage, manage your expectations. You can only convince someone if they want to be convinced. If they don't, it'll never work. Now, does that make sense? If someone doesn't want to be convinced, if someone doesn't want their mind changed, then they're not going to change their mind. So this leads to the question, can you help someone get to the point where they want to change their mind? Can you, this is different. Does this make sense? So instead of uh, saying, I'm going to change this person's mind so they agree with me, instead, I'm going to get this person to want to change their mind or at least to be open to changing their mind. And then I'll work on getting them to agree with me. That's how the process has to go. You can't shortcut. You can't shortcut to changing, changing their mind. You got to go, you got to have them want to change their mind first. So two background points on this, and then we'll talk about how to do it. First thing, people form opinions like that, that fast. Your brain makes judgments about people in literal milliseconds, specifically 30, 30 milliseconds. They've done a study, they've done many studies, where they'll flash up on a screen a picture of someone's face. And it's so fast that you, you, don't, even, you don't even see it. Like you don't even realize you see it, but your brain does. Like you could never describe that person that you saw up on the screen. It just flashes too fast, but your brain saw it. How do they know? Because they will wire your brain up and they'll, they'll measure the activity in your brain. Specifically, one part of your brain, the amygdala. The amygdala is the part of the brain that's uh, related to judgment of someone's trustworthiness or untrustworthiness. So they'll flash this picture of someone's face up on the screen. Boom, that fast. And before you even know what you saw, your brain already flash made a judgment about whether you trust them or not. That's how fast we judge people. And that's how fast we make judgments on issues. And we talked about this last week. It's called intuitive premacy. Now, I want to use Betsy DeVos as an example just because it's, it's very easy to understand. This is uh, Trump's Secretary of Education. Her name was announced as the nominee. No one outside of Michigan had ever heard of her. No one's ever heard of uh, Betsy DeVos. No one. But then one day, there's a news flash. Betsy DeVos named Trump's Secretary of Education and everyone that fast made an opinion. Bad. I hate her. Or good, I like her. Great pick. <laughs> it's like, no one's ever heard of her. But people made those judgments based off of, uh, well, a number of factors. The biggest, of course, whether or not you like Trump. But we'll go over a few more examples and, and just to prove that there's a lot of different factors that go into people making instantaneous judgments of someone or something. Okay, so that's how fast it goes. Then, the next step, step number one is we form opinions that fast. Step number two is we polish and perfect that initial judgment. From that point forward, everything we do is polish and perfecting that initial judgment we made. We never try to prove ourselves wrong. We only try to prove ourselves right because being right feels good and we want to feel good. 
right? That makes sense, doesn't it? Being wrong feels bad. So we don't try to prove ourselves wrong. We only try to prove ourselves right. So if you are inclined to like Betsy DeVos, and you're, you're thinking, didn't we talk about this last week? We did, but I, I got I to gotta get this background before we move on to the key here. If you are inclined to like Betsy DeVos, all you ask is, can I like her? And then you find one reason why you can. Oh, she's in support of vouchers. Me too. Perfect. I support vouchers. I like her. I knew I was right. If you are inclined to not like her, then you ask, must I like her? And then you find one reason why you don't have to like her. Oh, she doesn't support special needs kids, which obviously is not true, but it doesn't matter. All you got to find one little tiny inkling of a thing. And you're like, oh, pff, I knew I didn't like her. I knew I was right. I knew she was bad. This is how we make judgments all the time. So here's where we are. If you support Betsy DeVos and you're trying to talk to someone who doesn't like Betsy DeVos, which I believe is the conversation Stetson was having with someone. You support her. This person doesn't. It's impossible to convince this person to like Betsy DeVos. It's impossible. Because they're only looking for reasons to not like her. You can give a thousand reasons why she's good. It doesn't matter. Because this person's only looking for reasons why she's bad. So they'll ignore everything you say a hundred times over. They're not interested in disagreeing with themselves. Now keep in mind that themselves is a split millisecond judgment that they made out of nowhere. The first instant they heard Betsy DeVos's name. So that, that was the so now everything is based off of just that one split second decision. That's how we're wired. So you can't get that person from over there to where you are. It just can't happen. So what do we do with this? How do I convince someone to change their mind? Well, again, that's not the right question. It's how do I get someone to want to change their mind? Or how do I get someone to even be open to changing their mind? Okay, here's the two pieces of advice. Here it is. First, and this is what Stetson did. Ask the person, do you want to believe what I'm saying? Do you want to? Like, just be, be upfront. Like, because otherwise, what are we doing here? So, so, do you want to believe what I'm saying? And they'll say no. Now, the goal of this is to get the person to realize how closed their mind really is. They'll probably get defensive after that, and that will be the end of the conversation. But hopefully, next time, they talk to someone or next time they talk to you, their guard will be a little more down. They'll have a little bit more of an open mind now that they realized how closed their mind was. See, we don't realize how, we don't realize our brains work like this, like everything I just described. So we don't realize how high our guard is. We don't realize how defensive we are. We don't realize how closed our minds are. So with this simple, hey, do you, just real quick, and not, it doesn't have to be rude. It's just, do you, do you want to, do you want to believe what I'm saying at all? Like, do you want to hear, hear what I'm saying? Just that one simple question and they'll realize how closed their mind is. Now they're going to get defensive for a second, but again, they'll come back the next day and be a little more open mind. Mine did. So do you want to believe what I'm saying? They'll say no, but that's okay. Second piece of advice. Don't ask someone why they think a certain thing. Don't ask them why. Because it doesn't matter. Ask them where they formed that opinion. That's the key. That's the whole thing. 
and, and I hope that if we, we can talk about this enough over time and, and we can really get everyone listening here to be trained to, to ask that question, where did you form that opinion? This is essential. This is the key. Where did you form it? Why you think it doesn't matter. It's where did you form it? And if you can identify that, or if they can identify that, that brings them back to that initial judgment point. And then you can start from there. I hope that makes sense. I want to take a break here. I'll come back. I'll identify again how how to do that part. Because this is key. This is everything. And imagine if conversations are had like this from now on, you'll you'll be so much influential in your circle, so much more influential. Where did you form that opinion? Okay, we'll break that down more next. 1-800-933-93. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. This is Mike Slater. All right, Slater, thanks for being here. Let's wrap this up here. So imagine a, a Y in your brain, the letter Y. So you're going uh, up the road, right? You and this person who is a, this progressive person, right? Going down this road together, right? Down the straight part of the Y. And then something bad happens. There's a hurt, a pain, a neglect, abuse, ridicule, something that causes a wound in your life. So your life takes a left-hand turn. You start heading in that direction. Instead of going straight, you start heading to the left. That direction is not where you want to go. Okay, that's a life full of uh, regret and fear and anxieties and all that. Let me be specific here. Let's say you were neglected by your parents. Okay, so you're going along, you're growing up, and then boom, you're neglected by your parents. That's the pivot. You go left. So now you grow up having trouble in real life uh, holding lasting, or an adult life, I should say, having lasting committed relationships. And you keep going down that road and you realize you're not in a good place. Now, the only way to get to where you need to be, where you otherwise would be, if it weren't for that neglect when you were younger, is to go back to the source of the pain, go back to the source of the wound, recognize that, work through that, mourn for that, resolve that, then you can turn back to where you need to be, which is up the right-hand part of the Y. 
you can't shortcut from where you are to where you want to be without going back to the source of the pain. So you got to go back, you got to backtrack and then go forward again. You can't shortcut, impossible. In biblical terms, this is repentance and redemption, but it's just truth. You have to identify and then work through whatever that fork in the road was. Whatever caused you to veer left, you got to go back to it in order to go over your right, okay? So th- th- this is the, the conversation we're having though. It's the same thing with, with trying to change someone's mind on an issue. It's the exact same outline. Every judgment made in a millisecond, that's the pivot, that's the fork in that Y. And then they go left, and then everything is done to, conf- to, to prove yourself right. So again, we're talking about Betsy DeVos. Um, and this person who hates Betsy DeVos. Okay, you like Betsy DeVos, they hate Betsy DeVos. They'll give you 10 reasons why they hate her. Right, you ask why, why do you hate her so much? They'll give you 10 reasons, but it doesn't matter. Don't ask why. Well, you can ask why, but and, you know, get them to talk, but nothing's going to happen there. And you can give your 10 reasons why you like her. He'll, she'll give the ten, they'll give the 10 reasons why they hate her and nothing happens. Ask instead where they first formed their opinion on her. And they'll say, where? What do you mean? Yeah, where? Like li- literally, where were you? Um, I was in the teacher's lounge. Okay. What happened? I, I heard a fellow teacher say that she was the nominee. Have you ever heard of her before then? No, I never heard of her. That was the first I've heard of her. Well, what'd the teacher say? What'd that other teacher say about her? Oh, that she was a racist and, and hate, hates kids, just like all Republicans. Hmm. Okay. That, that's, where you, that's where you first heard of Betsy DeVos? That's where you formed your opinion about her? That's where you formed your judgment? Okay. I think at this point, they'll start to realize that it's starting to crumble a little bit. And they'll realize that from that point forward, well, they, they became a little jaded just based off of that one initial judgment. And that was based off of someone else's opinion. So this teacher is going on, think about this why again. This teacher's going on in life, never heard of Betsy DeVos, heard about her for the first time. This is the turning point. This is the hurt or the pain or the wound moment that I was talking about a little bit ago. And he veers left. You, on the other hand, veered right. So you got to get this other person over to this old, totally different place. First, they'll get them back to where they heard of Betsy DeVos. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I guess I guess I, you know, I don't even like that teacher. <laughs> they'll say, you know, maybe that initial judgment I made was a little too hasty. Maybe I shouldn't have taken that other person's word for it. I don't even like that teacher. Maybe instead I should, I should come to my own judgment on Betsy DeVos and not just steal someone else's. And then once they can start thinking about that, once you get them back to that place, back to their pivot point, back to where they, where they first heard about Betsy DeVos, then you can have a conversation uh, that they may at least have a chance of listening with a more open mind and you can get them to where you are. It's the only way though. Only chance. So I, I really mean this. You can, you can, I don't mean to be a jerk, but you can ignore this advice and then never convince anyone of anything ever again. Maybe the super rare chance someone will want to open their mind and you can grasp that moment. But otherwise, it's never going to happen. So we can just keep yelling at each other or we can really 
try to figure out where someone formed their opinion in the first place. I want to give an example of this next. Uh, NPR actually did a uh, interesting experiment, and I hope they do more of these actually. They took two people who got in an argument on Facebook. They didn't, they didn't know each other. They got in an argument on Facebook and NPR had them meet in real life face to face. That was awesome. Because how many arguments have we got on Facebook? I mean, goodness gracious. But they had them talk in real life. And, and in this conversation, they were arguing about welfare. But as they were talking, what they were doing, they didn't know it, but what they were doing was figuring out where each person formed their opinion on welfare. And that's what we have to do. I'll give you another quick example because later, I only got a minute, but later in the show, I want to talk about secondhand smoke and, and uh, please keep, keep your reaction to this until we end up talking about it. But there are zero heart or lung uh, health consequences of secondhand smoke. It's totally made up and I'll explain it a little later. But I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I go, uh, I go, what do you think of secondhand smoke? He goes, it kills. And then I explained why there's no such thing as secondhand smoke. And he's like, what? What do you mean? It kills. It kills. And I was like, where'd you first hear that it kills? And he's like, I don't even know. So why do you think it kills? I don't know. So what were you saying about it again? And he had a way more open mind about what I was saying. It was really interesting. So we'll do that a little later. 888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Good luck. Godspeed. If you use these uh, techniques, let me know how it goes. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. So NPR did a, uh, a fun experiment. I hope they do more of these. They took two people uh, on Facebook who got into a political argument and had them meet in real life. Who here has a Facebook timeline that's just, it's, it's just on fire. It's, it's, it's totally out of control. I think, I think everyone does. I can't like it's 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 so hard to even go on anymore. And Twitter Twitter conversations like are you kidding me? Totally pointless Twitter Twitter discussion like arguments like forget it. Facebook's marginally better, but either is a, a total waste of time when it comes to having uh, political discourse. So NPR a couple weeks back put a picture of a woman in Central Pennsylvania with her husband and, and quoted her quote I've always been for gay rights and always will be. Jane Ruppert says she doesn't support everything Trump said during the campaign, but feels like he was being more authentic than Clinton. So she was a a Trump supporter. 6,000 comments to that article. Most attacking her, obviously. NPR reached out to 10 people who wrote the nastiest comments. Two of them responded. Back to NPR. One of those two women who responded happened to live in the next county. Like right, like right next door. 
How can that be? So this is what the woman wrote in response to uh, this Trump supporter. The should, only good I, thing I about a, should I do a uh, should I do a dramatic? Let me do a dramatic uh, a dramatic representation. I'll just I'll just read it here. She said, um, "The only good thing you know this is how she wrote it. The only good thing about Trump getting elected is that idiots like this will get a big kick in the boop." The bad part is we all have to suffer long with these unintelligent Trump supporters. Ta, send. Or post or whatever. Like, you know that that's how, uh, how she wrote it. Super angry. So they got the two of them to meet together in the hotel lobby. So a couple of points. First, people write horrible stuff on Facebook that they would never say to someone's face. Ever. Because they know, I was going to say it's because they know it's mean, but it's not that it's mean. It's, it's, they know that it's not how they would want to be treated. I mean, that, that's what it is. So, so people, I think humans are ingrained with the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated. So in face-to-face interactions, the golden rule is pretty obvious. Like I'm not going to be super mean to this. Or I'm not, let's, let's just, let's be extreme. I'm not going to punch this person in the face because I don't want to get punched in the face. <laughs> And it's like, well, I don't want to be super rude to this person because I don't want them to be super rude back. So, so it kind of just puts a temper on our, the way we talk to each other most of the time. But with the anonymity of Facebook, you can just type something on Facebook, press enter, walk away, feel good about yourself and never see how that person reacts. So there's a disconnect of the golden rule. Right? You, you think you're immune from the golden rule consequences when people write stuff on Facebook. It's the craziest thing. I'll get every once in a while, I don't get too much anymore, but I'll get hate mail. Slater, you're the worst. You're so stupid. I hate you. Blah, 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 blah. And I always write back. Always. Always write back. Man, like, sorry, you feel that way. Like, what what was it specifically that you were that you were upset with? Like, what did I what did I what did I exactly do? I'd love to improve. I just kill him with kindness. Like, thank you for giving the show a chance. I hope maybe one day in the future you can listen again. Uh, you know, we'll be here always trying to get a, and and every time. I'm not getting every time. They write back, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't think you were, I didn't think you were going to read. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to write back. I didn't think you were going to read it. It was like, they thought they were just sending it off to a fake person. It's hilarious. And, and, and every time they're like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just having a really bad day. Hey, I actually really like your show. <laughs> it's like, well, what the heck were you, were you just doing? It's the anonymity of it all. So that's why I like this little social experiment here with NPR because it takes two, two women who you know, are fighting on Facebook and brings them together. And they sit next to each other now. All right, so this is, um, this is the Trump hater reading out loud what she wrote on Facebook. Now, listen to the tone of her voice compared to how you know she wrote it, right? You know she wrote it. The only good thing, the stupid Trumps, right? This is how she read it in real life, 1365. The only good thing about Trump getting elected is that idiots like this will get a big kick in the <laughs> The bad part is, is we will all have to suffer along with these unintelligent Trump supporters. Right. So it's like, it wasn't, it was a little bit better. It wasn't perfectly sweet and kind, <laughs> but I think as she was reading it, she was like, oh, geez. This is, uh, this is how the woman responded. Next quote. Well, it's hurtful. I mean, she doesn't even know me. She's basing my intelligence off of one decision. You know, that's like just being so judgmental and very unfair. So people on Facebook say things they never say to your face. And I just say that just because just don't get worked up over it. 
Don't get worked up over it and don't. Just don't engage. Really don't. Point two. We have this uh, in our culture today, this fetish for diversity. We talk about it all the time. And on Facebook, things that make us different are obvious, right? This woman likes Trump. This woman hates Trump. These, they're different fight. That's how that works. But when they met in person in the hotel lobby, they're both registered nurses. They're both moms. They both grew up in the same part of the state. They're both the same age. So they have the same like cultural you know, markers and, and experiences and all the rest growing up in the same part of the country at the same time. They have so much in common. That's incredible. And, and, then, and that's what you discover when you actually talk to someone face-to-face, and that's what we're losing in our society, among other things. Main point, though. This is them uh, getting into a conversation about welfare. I, I think this is the, the Clinton supporter, the, the Trump hater, talking about welfare. I know that it's helped me and it's helped others that I am friends with. Um, they now have college degrees. They are now in considered middle class. So, I mean, I think that's a good thing. But you took the system and you bettered yourself. There are people who don't do that. I have had personal friends who are still on welfare, who are still getting Section 8, who are still getting food stamps and not trying to do anything with their lives. There are career welfare people. Any response to that? Um, I guess I just find it. I, I'm always flabbergasted that people are so upset by helping people and feeding people and make sure people have housing. You're right. There's nothing wrong with helping people. Helping people who want to be helped and not are just walking around with their hand out. Why do you let other people's situations bother you so much? Like, it's not really affecting you because, I mean, really, if you go and do the research on it, you're not paying that much money of your taxes isn't going to social programs. It's going to everything else. As the conversation continues, it becomes clear that Jamie had an experience a few years back that played a big role in her decision to vote for Trump. She lived in Wilkes-Barre in a rough neighborhood. I had two white guys pull up in front of my house, start shooting up heroin 5 o'clock in the afternoon during the summer, broad daylight. Jamie says her family was struggling financially. There was a subsidized apartment building nearby that attracted crime and drug dealing. Jamie says she saw people driving away in nice cars. It upset her that people who broke the rules appeared to be doing well. Okay. I share that because everyone's initial judgment, that's what we were just talking about the first half hour of the show, everyone's initial judgment is based off of something. Right? That's why you got to ask people, where did you form this opinion? Where, where did this come from? Everyone's opinion today is based off of a something, like an initial moment. And then it creates a movie in our head. So for the Clinton supporter, the movie in her head is, I was on welfare. It helped me. I think welfare is good. And I'm only going to pay attention to examples of it being good. And I'm only going to paint a picture in my head of welfare recipients being grateful, understanding people wanting to better themselves, just like I was. And that's plays in her head over and over and over. And that's why when the Trump supporter, or that, that's, why, me, that's why the Clinton supporter said something like, what is wrong with helping people? How can you be against helping people? Because to her, in her brain, that's all welfare is. It's helping people. Where did you come that, to that opinion? Well, it helped me. See, that, that's, that's the connection. Now, the Trump supporter, 
where did you, so she's, she's against, you know, these big welfare programs. Where did you, like, where, where did you form this opinion? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> I had this experience living next to section eight housing, people driving nice cars, a lot of moochers, all the rest. So in her head, the movie, the, the movie in her head is about people are moochers. They're using section eight. It's a waste of money. They're driving nice cars. It's not fair. They're on it for their entire lives. Like this is the movie that plays in her head over and over. That's why she is like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get the people like, like this is killing people. This is keeping people enslaved. They're in the system forever. They're in the churn. They never get out. They're taking advantage of you. This is why. And, and if you were talking to this person, you'd be like, man, where'd you form that opinion? When I was 12, I, I goes back to the where. So I'm not going to talk about who's right or wrong here. That doesn't matter. It's not the point of what we're talking about. The point is that these two women, you can see how clear it is. They're wares. Where did their opinion come from? And again, if you want to change someone's mind on an issue, don't just get them to list off the reasons why welfare is good or bad. Get them to go back to where they formed their judgment. Because everything after that judgment is only done to conform confirm their initial opinion. So if you want to change their initial opinion, you got to go back to the moment that they formed it. And these two women each had very different experiences. But unless they can go back to that experience, you'll never go in a different direction with them. It's the way our brains work. one 888 Slater Radio, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater! I want to talk about California coming up next and how California is so horribly run as you know but i got some really interesting uh, stories to share we'll do that next but real quick i got about three minutes i want to talk about the department of education uh well, first mark uh Bauerlein made a really great point uh, about betsy devos i know we've mentioned her name a few times the unions keep saying you know she doesn't support public education she's horrible she's horrible you can't vote for her she doesn't support public education i never picked up on this but mark Bauerlein nailed it Betsy DeVos is not the secretary of the Department of Public Education. She's the secretary of the, de- of the Department of Education. Or excuse me, she's not the secretary of the Department of Public Schools. That's what I meant to say. I apologize. She's not the secretary of the Department of Public Schools. She's the secretary of the Department of Education. Very different. She's not there to defend public schools or to fund pro- public schools or to improve public schools. She's there to improve kids' education, whatever it takes to get kids to learn, whatever it takes. So the fact that the unions are arguing that she's not essentially the secretary of the Department of Public Schools proves that that's their higher priority. Public schools, not kids' education. So I got two minutes here. Where did the Department of Education start? You know, where seems to be the key word of, of the hour here. Where did it start? Yeah, I ask all the time, why does it still exist? And no one can answer that question. But where did it start in the first place? Well, before 1979, when it started, it was the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And they took the Department of Education, or they took the education part out of it and made it, it made it its own bureaucracy. That was President Carter. Why? 
1976, he made a campaign promise to the National Education Association. That's the largest uh, labor union in the United States, one of the teachers' unions. This is the Washington Post, 1980. The NEA, the union, teachers' union, gave its first presidential endorsement ever in 1976 when Walter Mondale promised them at an NEA annual meeting that the Carter administration would form an education department. At the 76th Democratic National Convention, more delegates, 180, belonged to the NEA than any other group of any kind. They endorsed Carter for 1980 and were a major force in getting delegates to the Iowa caucuses, which he won and then you know, made a big deal for, uh, for Carter in Iowa. So the question the Washington Post asked in 1980 was, is the department then a creature of the NEA? The executive director said that's true. There would be no department without the NEA. Carter's approval rating at the time was 30% because of the oil crisis and a bunch of other things. Personally, the Department of Education was really low on his priorities list. But he thought if he made it happen, then he would get the powerful NEA vote, the teachers' union vote, and maybe win re-election. Isn't that amazing? That's all it was. Just a campaign handout. Check out this quote. This is uh, Wall Street Journal. This is a Democrat who voted for it, uh, who says that Democrats voted for the Department of Education because, first, they didn't want to embarrass their president, right? The Democratic president who was running for re-election. That would look bad right before an election. Uh, you know, the Democrats not voting for something he wanted, right? And this is a quote. The idea of an education department is really a bad one, but it's the NEA's top priority. There are school teachers in every congressional district, and most of us simply don't need the aggravation of taking them on. So it started purely as a giveaway to the teachers' union. That's it. And now it exists really only still because of the teachers' union. As a way to keep their union power and the dues coming in. Enough already. Enough. Now we know why it started. We went back to the where. It's a total scam. There was no need for it. It's not like people were clamoring for it. That's my point. It's not like parents are like, oh, we need the federal government to be in charge. And no, no politicians were even calling for it. It was a totally a creation of the teachers' union. And it's being held on by the teachers' union. And it's got to go. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. We'll talk about the Oroville Dam and how California is just a mess. Coming up next, Brother Word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy uh, happy Saturday. So I want to chat about California in general. Nestle just uh, announced the other day that they're moving their U.S. headquarters out of Glendale, taking 1,300 jobs with them. And the politician's response in Glendale is basically good riddance. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's good riddance. Uh, we're, we're really into the tech technology jobs now. So you can go ahead and take your, your hot pockets out of here. It's like, what do you, 
it's it's unbelievable this state it's it's nearly impossible to live here so i want to talk about the oroville dam you may have heard of this uh, made some national news here and there it's a perfect metaphor for california the oroville dam is a perfect perfect metaphor for this state so i want to build to that but i want to start here you may have heard this a couple weeks ago kevin de leon he is the leader of the state senate in california representing part of la and there's a bill that was proposed to make California a sanctuary state. So forget about sanctuary cities. California as a state would not comply in any way with the federal government on immigration issues. Okay, that's the proposal. So the leader of the Senate gets up and says, quote, half of my family would be eligible for deportation under the executive order. Because they've got a false social security card. They got a false identification. Half of my family, they have a false driver's license. They have false green card. And anyone who has family members who are undocumented knows that almost entirely everybody has secured some form of false identification. He just admitted that half of his family is fake everything, fake green card? Good night. So a couple things. First, he meant to he said this as a way to like get sympathy out of the people of California, right? With, 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 with uh, the old, listen, we're all just trying to make a living here. Am I right? Am I right, people of California? We're all just trying to, to provide for our families. <laughs> that, that was, that's the attempt. Meanwhile, the rest of the state's like, well, yeah, but I don't break the law trying to do it. That's, so, so you're not going to get a lot of sympathy with that one. Second point. Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite people, professor at Stanford now, uh, he wrote last month, he said, in California, the neglect of the felony requires the rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. I love that line. That's, uh, let me, let's sit on this for a second. The neglect of the felony. So, this is a metaphor here for important things. The neglect of important things, serious things, requires rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. Less serious things, less important things. All right, so what does this mean in, in practice? Uh, well, our governor, Jerry Brown, has released more parolees than, than any governor. 2,000 of them were serving life sentences life sentences released on parole. Are you kidding me? Life, it's one thing if maybe someone's serving a, a couple of years, you give them parole. Life sentences, get parole. 2,000. But, but in California, it's against the law to use plastic grocery bags. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Literally going to release felons. Like, that, like literally going to release felons. Serving a life, life sentence. But you, law-abiding citizen who's going to go to the grocery store to buy some food you can't use plastic grocery bags neglected the felony rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor so illegal immigrants yeah sure fake green car driver's license yeah, no, no big deal that's fine but you law-abiding citizen oh, oh, oh we are gonna wreck you we're oh you want oh you want to protect your family with a gun that's cute that's cute yeah you're not allowed to do that oh but you illegal immigrant family sure you guys can do whatever you want 
That's amazing, right? That, that's what this is. Let me uh, share a story here from Victor Davis Hanson, Professor Hanson. He says, on my rural street, he lives in Fresno, there are two residences not far apart. In one, shacks dot the lot. There are dozens of porta potties, wrecked cars, and unlicensed and unvaccinated dogs, all untouched by the huge tentacles of the state's regulatory octopus. Nearby, another owner is being regulated to death as he tries to rebuild a small burned house. His well, after 30 years, is suddenly discovered by the state to be in violation under a new regulation governing the allowed distance between his well and the septic drain. So he drills another costly well. Then his neighbor's agricultural well is suddenly discovered to be by the state regulators too close as well. So he breaks up sections of his expensive new leach line. And after a new septic system has been built, been built by a licensed contractor and a new well was drilled by a, li- not a licensed well driller, he has, after a year, $40,000 poorer, still not been permitted to even start to rebuild his 900-square-foot house. In the former case, the owner of porta potties and shacks clearly cannot pay and belongs to an exempt class of the other. The latter owner is a rare law-abiding Californian, and so he has a regulatory target on his back because he's someone of the vanishing middle class who can and will do and pay as ordered. He is an endangered species whose revenue-raising torment is necessary to exempt others from the same ordeal. That is California. That's a perfect example of what it is. You get some people who don't abide by the law, don't follow the law, don't care about the law, and the government exempts them. And then you get other people who are law-abiding, and they pay and they do as ordered, and they have to pay more and more and more in order to allow others to be exempt, right? In order to fund this state. There's California. Now, there's, I don't want to get too off topic here because I want to give an example of this. Um, I want to bring this to the dam coming up next. But California is also, or what I just explained right there, is, is a great symptom of the, the city versus country divide. California is mostly country. Look at a county-by-county county map of California, and it's all red. It's all red, except for the coast. The coasts are blue, but the whole rest of the place is red. I can go, well, I... I happen to live a little bit inland already, but where I used to live, Mission Beach, right on the ocean, or uh, right on the beach, is um, if I went 25 minutes inland, 20 minutes, I'm in basically rural Kentucky. Like, I'm not even kidding. It's like super country. You got the lakeside rodeo and all like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, super, super country in this crazy state. So what I just described right there is, is the classic city versus country divide. Now you're saying, well, hold on. Those two houses that the professor described, they're both in the country. Yes, but the people making the regulations and the people deciding who are exempt from them are city folk. One last quote here from Hanson. The rich on the coast tune out. From her nest in Rancho Mirage, a desert oasis created by costly water transfers, outgoing Senator Barbara Boxer rails about water transfers. 
when Jerry Brown leaves his governorship, he will not live in Bakersfield, but probably in hip Grass Valley. High crime, the flight of small businesses and water shortages, water shortages cannot bound the fences of Nancy Pelosi's Palladian Villa or the security barriers and walls of Mark Zuckerberg and other Silicon Valley billionaires who press for more regulation and for more compassion for the oppressed, but always from a distance and always from the medieval assumption that their money and privilege exempt them from the consequences of their idealism. There's no such thing as an open border for a neighbor of Mr. Zuckerberg or of Ms. Pelosi. Right, so the people making these regulations, they're city folk. They're exempt from the consequences of making them, but sure, they, they sure do feel good about themselves after they make them. How does a state survive when the laws are not enforced on some people and harassingly so on others? Talking about the haves and the have-nots. This is the Oroville Dam. I'll bring it to that next. And wait until you hear some of these stories about our water situation in California. It is insane. One, it Now, on, let me say this too. I should have started with this. I used to live in Tennessee. When I lived in Tennessee, I would do segments talking about California. Because California is a crystal ball for what's to come. In your state, if you don't heed the warnings. California is the beginning of the progressive movement. It's like the, the, the test case of progressive causes in the country. So if you do nothing, if you sit back, this is, the, this is where you're going to be like too. And if you don't like what I'm describing right now, then make note of it and do the opposite. So that's why it's important, even if you're listening now in uh, a normal state. one 933 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The Oroville Dam, second largest dam in California, 90 minutes north of Sacramento, built in 1961 and 1968. Now, remember, a couple of years ago in California, there was a never-ending drought. It's never going to rain again. No one can take showers anymore. We got to stop all farming. No more green lawns. That's a thing of the past. Our governor, Jerry Brown, said green lawns are a thing of the past in California. I guarantee you his lawn is still green, but that's what he said. I'm not kidding. And I'm only exaggerating about those first two about don't take showers anymore and stop all farming. The point is that we were told just two years ago that we'll never have sufficient rainfall again. Now, I want to be clear here. A drought is different from a water shortage. Of course, there's a drought. I'm in San Diego. This is a desert. San Diego's a desert. Of course, there's a drought. But that doesn't mean there has to be a water shortage. There's no excuse for a water shortage. Because it's 2017 and we should have plenty of dams and water storage for these cyclical and predictable drought periods. Now, when there was a drought and water levels were low, we should have been building more water storage capacity. 
That hasn't been done in decades. Here we are today, and the dams are all overflowing. I'm not kidding. They're overflowing. They're all, there's 12 state, uh, state-run reservoirs. They're all well above historic average, 150% above historic average. And some of them are overflowing, like Oroville. For every gallon of water that's pumped to the people of California, three and a half gallons are dumped into the ocean. I'm not kidding. Now, we'll do a little quick back, back of the napkin math. And I share this. You're not in California. Like Slater, who cares? Just so that you, you question everything that politicians tell you. Because, oh, we're in a drought. Now, we, they convinced so many people in California that we were in a never-ending drought, 2014, that People of California passed a $7 billion water bond and none of it went to water. Okay? This is why you got to know that every time they say something, they're lying. Especially when it's a crisis-related thing because that gives them more power and, and excuse to raise taxes. Um, what was I going? I said the one... Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. I'm doing very generous math here. Very, very conservative math. About 12... Now, I've got 10 uh, million acre-feet of water in the last 12 months have been dumped into the ocean. Now, again, super conservative. You get about one family of four consumes an acre-foot of water a year. It's actually two families of four, but I'm going to go one family of four just to make it better for my point. One family of four consumes about an acre-foot of water a year. That means... There's enough water that we dumped into the ocean just the last year for 40 million people. There's 38 million people in California. There's plenty of water. We just keep pumping it into the ocean. What's going on? You're probably wondering, why don't you just build more water storage capacity? Hasn't been done in decades. Here's why. Jerry Brown, our governor, and the left, progressives, the environmentalists, they don't want more water storage. This is what's so interesting about this. It's, let me try to do this as clear as possible. It's not like the people of California are saying, hey, we need to increase water storage by a million gallons. I'm just making up a number. We need to increase it by a million. And the governor's saying, well, a million's kind of a lot. Let's increase it by 800,000. Okay, fine, 800,000. That's not what's happening. It's... The people are saying, Jerry Brown, we got to increase water storage. And Jerry Brown's saying, ah, how about we decrease it? Wait, what? Yeah, I think we got too much water storage. No, no, no. We don't have nearly enough water storage. Well, no, we're going to have less. We're totally back and totally opposite. Jerry Brown subscribes to a, an, an environmental philosophy, small is beautiful. This is a philosophy he got from a close friend of his, E.F. Schumacher. Um, in the 70s. They were such close friends, Jerry Brown flew to London to speak at his funeral. Okay? The idea is, don't grow. Okay, Small is beautiful, less is more. Limit growth. How do we limit growth? Well, make electricity really expensive. Higher taxes. Less water. Jerry Brown proposed a couple months ago what he calls the road diet where he said we're not going to build or improve our current road infrastructure so that it becomes so unbearable to drive that people will be forced to use mass transit. 
Okay, that that's that's Cal, that's our governor. That's that's what's happening here. That's that's his philosophy when it comes to infrastructure. Now you would think the government's job is to provide these things. Jerry Brown thinks it's his job to ration these things to his liking. And I love it whenever uh, you know a conservative says, you know, government's too big. We don't need government. I love it. This, you remember this during the Tea Party. Progressives will come back and be like, oh, yeah, well, if there was no government, who would build the roads? And it's like, you don't even want roads. (laughs) You don't want roads. You don't want people to use cheap electricity. You don't want people to use water. So what are you doing? Well, it's the government's job to limit those things and ration those things. Now, this is very different from, obviously, a sane, rational philosophy, but also very different from his dad. Jerry Brown's dad was governor, Pat Brown. He was governor when a thousand people a day were moving to California. And he embraced this and he met this with huge projects, huge uh, infrastructure projects, not just for the sake of creating jobs, but for the sake of creating an environment where free people could create jobs. Pat Brown um, built, built these giant dams. He was a part of building them. He was about a part of building the, the uh, highways. Uh, the public school system, like the UC system, and power plants. Total opposite. Like like Pat Brown built them or was governor when they were built. He had the vision for them. Jerry Brown's tearing them down. There's a nuclear power plant about 10 minutes or 20 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. They tore it down. Standing over, they just tore it down for no reason. It's unbelievable. Pat Brown saw the earth as something that could be changed to benefit humans. Okay, we're going to put a dam here. We're going to increase water storage. We're going to pipe the water down to Southern California so people can live there. That's Pat Brown. Jerry Brown, his son, sees the earth as as something fragile. And humans are a disease to it. This is why the water bond that I told you about, where you're like, what do you mean the money doesn't go to water? A lot of the money, billions of dollars, goes to what's called rewilding removing dams so that the rivers are restored to their natural state. I'm not even joking. We're going to, we're going to eliminate dams, decrease, get rid of water storage. We're saying we need to build more dams or increase the capacity of dams. And Jerry Brown saying, nah, how about we tear them down to rewild the river? It is insane. Absolutely insane. The weather's nice, but everything else Slater Radio on Twitter, 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Here's the line. In California, the neglect of the felony requires the rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. So the neglect of important things, the neglect of more serious concerns, requires the rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. That's how California is run. I want to quote here. And, and so the Oroville Dam is a great example. 
Okay. The Oroville Dam, I would put our water infrastructure. By the way, if you, if you haven't been, I think this made national news here and there. Uh, dam, Northern California, second largest in the state. Uh, it's overflowing. And the spillover is all busted and not properly maintained, even though over a decade ago, people were like, ah, oh, that thing's not, that's going to break. So it, it broke, it eroded the side of the hill. Um, there's a chance if it rains, continues to rain this weekend, that the erosion continues, the dam busts. If that's true, then the town underneath would be under 100 feet of water. And Yuba City, which is a little further down, would be about 10 feet underwater. And that's why 200,000 people were evacuated. So it's pretty serious. Um, that's a, I think that's, that's priority number one of government. Well, priority number one is safety, right? Public safety. Number two is all the infrastructure stuff. But they're not worried about that. They're worried about banning plastic bags at grocery stores. In California, you can't use plastic bags. There's no plastic bags anymore. This is just voted on by the people in November. It's amazing. We voted on this. It was a statewide proposition. Something like 60% of people voted to ban plastic bags. The next day, everyone goes to the grocery store and there's a big sign. It's like, sorry, no plastic bags. And everyone's freaking out. Like, what do you mean no plastic bags? And everyone's like, literally yesterday, you voted on this. Yesterday, you voted no plastic bags. And now here we are, no plastic bags. You should have, there are signs put up in grocery stores that said, please don't harass the baggers and the checkout people. They didn't vote for this. You did. People are so stupid here. Anyway, that's my point, right? The, the neglect of the felony, rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. Neglect of important things, rigid prosecution of not important things. Now, specifically on, on, on infrastructure and the environment, Jerry Brown believes that humans are a disease on the planet. I'm not kidding. This is a speech, um, 2015, Jerry Brown, our governor. For over 10,000 years, people lived in California. But the number of these people were never more than 300,000 or 400,000. Now we are embarked upon an experiment that no one has ever tried. 38 million people with 32 million vehicles living at the level of comfort that we all strive to attain. This will require adjustment. This will require learning. In other words, just government rationing and control. I love that 32 million vehicle part. All right, that's, that's Jerry Brown's plug for the high-speed rail. All right, that's a great example. Great example. We're not going to improve road infrastructure, but we're going to build a $100 billion high-speed rail line that no one wants and no one needs and really isn't even that fast. Total absolute waste of money in every single possible conceivable way. Don't even get me started on that total boondoggle. He goes on and, uh, and I've heard other people say that, that Mother Nature didn't intend for 40 million people to live in California. Says who? What are you talking about? What do you mean Mother Nature didn't intend? Like, I, I love that. Like, I can't, I can't, if you're going to uh, uh, quote Mother Nature, like, I, w- what am I going to, like, that's a great way to make an argument. Well, Mother Nature says, really, wh- wh- where can I go ask her what she thinks now? Do, do you, oh, well, I, I just, I have a direct line with Mother Nature and what Mother Nature wants. Really? You're going to claim Mother Nature on your team? See what they do? Like, I can't claim something of higher authority than this made-up Mother Nature. Mother Nature didn't intend this. Well, I disagree. Maybe you should stop thinking as Mother Nature as something that we're fighting. And instead, look at Mother Nature, Mother Nature, as something that is providing. 
maybe God gave us this nice coastline in California so that we could turn all this infinite supply of salt water into drinking water. So maybe Mother Nature absolutely intended as many people to live in California. I can claim that for Mother Nature just as much as you can make up your made-up thing about Mother Nature. But do you see how good of an argument it is that they're making? Because I can't rebuttal the authority of Mother Nature. That's why they say it like that. Anyway, back to this rewilding thing. This annoys the heck out of me. So they want to rewild the rivers. It's called dam busters. So back in World War II, dam busters was a group of uh, British pilots that would fly over Nazi territory and bomb dams, blow them up. So it would uh, hurt the manufacturing of, uh, of the Nazis along the rivers. Today, dam busters are fighting us, right? They're, they're fighting America. They're fighting people. They're fighting California by blowing up dams. This is, this, is, this is the main movement of the environmentalist movement in California right now. This is the main goal is to remove the dams, rewild the rivers, which is so unbelievably arrogant. How do you know what the river should look like? Uh, well, we're turning the river to its natural state. How do you know what its natural state is? What's the natural state of a river? <laughs> how, how do you how, how how arrogant do you have to believe that you know what that is? I'll give me an example. How were the Great Lakes formed? How were the Great Lakes formed? Glaciers. So what's the natural state of Michigan? An iceberg? So I, I honestly think, what is the natural state of Michigan or the piece of land that we now call Michigan? <laughs> the, the Sahara Desert used to be lush with trees and grass and animals and people. What's the natural state of the Sahara Desert? Is it desert or jungle? What's the natural state? Come on, return it to its natural state. Or is this its natural state? The continents used to be connected for the love of Pete. So what's the natural state? Like, it doesn't even make any sense to talk about what the natural state of a river is. It's the same arrogance that they have when people say, well, the, the planet is a degree warmer than, than it should be. It should be? How do you know what the planet should be? How do you know what the planet of the temperature should be? Oh, well, it's the average of the last 150 years since we've been uh, calculating. How do you, well, so? 150 years. It's a pretty small sample size compared to the uh, the age of the Earth. So we're going to base everything off of whatever you think the temperature should be? Unbelievable arrogance. So even the very core of what the river should, you know, returning it to its natural state. Well, is its natural state, I'm making this number up, 100 gallons per minute rolling down the river or 1,000 gallons per minute? Or maybe no water. Maybe no water is its natural state. Like you don't you have no idea. You're just making it up. And that's what's frustrating, especially because it passes as science these days. All right, one last example of uh, felony versus misdemeanor. The, the neglect of the felony of important things requires the rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor, less important things. So while our water infrastructure is completely crumbling, the mayor of Los Angeles, Garcetti, who's a total clown, is, is launching an effort to lower the temperature of Los Angeles. I'm not joking. Climate change is so bad that he wants to, to fight it by lowering the temperature of Los Angeles as if there's just one giant air conditioner. Well, we can't use air conditioners because we don't have electricity. 
So because asphalt retains so much heat, the goal is to add cool pavement that reflects light, which I guarantee you will cause more harm than good because the reflected light's probably going to shine back up into the buildings, making the buildings hotter. People will have to turn on more AC, right? There's going to be so many unintended consequences of that. And then cool roofed buildings. There was a suggestion a few years back in California to paint all the roofs white. That'll make the roofs cooler or something. And now that got laughed away pretty quickly, but here LA is doing the same thing. So the mayor of Los Angeles has pledged to reduce the temperature by three degrees over the next 20 years. So a team of 20 scientists have been assembled to figure out how to make this happen. Okay. So stupid. The felony, meaning the more important thing, is water and electricity. If we had more water and electricity, then we'd be fine. We could stand a few more degrees. And it wouldn't matter. And it's all relative, too. Downtown Los Angeles, it's hotter than 95 degrees 22 days a year. Whatever. We can handle that. It's not humid at all either, so big deal. It's way worse than when I used to live in Tennessee, and it's 90 degrees with 100% humidity. That's infinitely worse. You want to know why people die from extreme heat? They don't have air conditioners. Why not? Because electricity is too expensive. So cheaper electricity would solve any health problems related to hot temperatures. But the left won't have that. Instead, they're tearing down nuclear power plants for no reason. Other than they're, they want electricity to be expensive. Amazing. And here with water, we have these giant threats. With the, 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 the stinking dam may break. But we're ignoring that felony, that important thing, for the rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. We're going to paint roofs white and have reflective asphalt. What a total joke. That's California. one 888 So again, just remember that line. The neglect of the felony, an important thing, requires the rigid prosecution of the misdemeanor. California in a nutshell. 888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater we got criminals let out on the street but heaven forbid your ice cream shop puts one too many chairs out on the outside patio right (laughs) you're gonna get the book thrown at you but prisoners are gonna be let out we'll spend billions on a not very high speed rail that no one wants or needs but we're not gonna spend a dime repairing or heaven forbid building new dams or water storage I want to share a story here about willful ignorance and how willful ignorance is is a life or death matter. This is a story of if we pretend it's not happening, then maybe it won't. Have you ever heard of the Spanish flu? The Spanish flu uh, was just after World War I. So just coming out of 1914, 1918, um, well, 50 million casualties worldwide, 9 million soldiers and 7 million civilians killed. 
Do you know why they call it the Spanish flu? Started in Spain, probably, right? Nope. We're actually not sure where it started. The first known case was in Kansas. Maybe it started in France. There's a theory it started in China, but it definitely was not Spain. So why is it called the Spanish flu? After World War I, morale in the world was pretty low, and morale in America. There was a law passed in 1917 that said newspapers can't print anything that might hurt people's morale. Don't print anything that might make people sad or demoralize people. And if you break that, then you can face up to 20 years in jail. That was the censorship law. And countries in Europe had the same law. So no one reported on this disease. Why? Because it was easily spread and there was no known cure. So if you report on it, you may be accused of breaking the morale law. Now, Spain was actually neutral during World War I. So they had no censorship law. So their press reported about this flu in great detail. And then the king came down with it too. So people all around the world read about this flu, but only in Spanish newspapers. So everyone assumed that it started there because no one else was talking about it. Only people in Spain were talking about it. And actually, people in Spain thought it came from France. They called it the French flu. And it's still in Spanish history books today. It's called the French flu. It didn't start in Spain, though. They were were just the only people who were allowed to talk about it. Here in America, you weren't. 1918, September 1918, the El Paso Herald, vicious rumors of influenza epidemic. Just just vicious rumors will be combated. That's all they were, vicious vicious rumors. There was a a parade in Philadelphia and there was a doctor who begged the newspapers to warn people about gathering in close quarters and no newspaper did. 117 people got the disease. By the end of the month, 759 people in Philadelphia died. And ultimately, between 20 and 50 million people died all around the world. 675,000 Americans were killed, more than in the war. And it was never cured. They never found a cure, it just went away. I just think that's a wild story because the media at the time through censorship, but I'm sure a lot of it also was their own desire, just didn't want to share certain bad news. And I feel like today, or at least in the last eight years, there was a sort of self-censorship, right? Not a lot of attention paid to the bombs that Obama dropped on people with drones across the Middle East. So it's like it never happened, right? Well, let's not talk about this flu. And we'll pretend it's not happening. It's still happening. It's very much still happening. Well, let's not talk about these bombs that were dropped on people. Uh, like it, it, it happened. And now, sort of in the opposite way, we have a media that that's, has an overabundance of fake news, just hysterical news. And I guess that would be the equivalent of, instead of what flu, it would be, everyone's going to die of the flu tomorrow. Right, and it's like the other extreme to the point where you get a boy cried wolf phenomenon where no one's paying attention at all how interesting so just to bring it back to California our politicians our media choose to ignore important things this is true in DC as well choose to ignore important things and then you get things that smack you in the face like the Oroville Dam and you're like oh I guess if we ignore it it doesn't mean it just went away Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network spread the word You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. That is America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. One more hour. The show's been flying. All right. Um, I want to share this story here just because I, I think it's interesting how we come to conclusions and just run with them without really thinking about it. If you're just tuning in, the whole first hour was about how to change someone's opinion on something. Um, and, and the premise is the two facts. I think we talked about this last week, but we went a little further this morning or two hours ago. Um, we make opinions that fast. Like we make a judgment that fast and then we run with it and we only polish and perfect it because we want to prove ourselves right. Right. So we come to a position immediately. That's what we think is right. And then we only look for things that prove how right we are. That's it. That's how it works. And everyone does it. Just how it goes. Now, if you want to change someone's mind on an issue, you have to go back to where they formed their initial opinion. And then talk about that. <laughs> where did you, where, so you, you hate Betsy DeVos, okay? Don't find out. Don't ask why. Where? Where did you form that opinion on her? And then explore that. And then you can start to pick it apart because they'll they'll realize they'll say oh um well actually it was a fellow teacher of mine said that she's a horrible person okay do you do you do you trust that person no well actually i don't even like that teacher but uh i, I believed him on this this thing well why why'd you believe him about this well i don't know do you want to come to your own conclusion about betsy devos okay well let's talk about betsy devos now right so you gotta like start to pick away at where they formed their initial opinion. Okay. So we talked about that earlier. This is similar. Um, and, and we talk about things like this from time to time. We debunk these major myths that go around. Uh, we've talked before about the great Pacific garbage patch that doesn't exist. <laughs> we, it just doesn't exist. And it's amazing. Cause if I say, uh, the great Pacific garbage patch, twice the size of Texas, a hundred feet deep, spinning, swirling around in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. People can visualize it. You you can visualize. If I say Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you have a vision in your head of what that looks like. But it doesn't exist. You made it up. That vision in your head of what the Great Pacific Garbage Patch looked like is made up because it doesn't exist. There are no pictures of it. It's not a thing. But why do people think not only it exists, why, do people, why can people visualize it? This is one that only you you only get if you're a millennial, but a majority of millennials swear that they've seen a movie called Shazam where Sinbad plays a genie. Sinbad's a genie and and he grants like a kid rubs the lamp and he comes out of the lamp and he grants the kid these wishes. A majority of millennials are like, "Oh, it's a great movie. I love that movie." It doesn't exist. There's no movie with Sinbad as a genie. It doesn't exist. Like, wait a second. Well, how do how can people swear they've seen it if it's not even a real movie? Uh, human brain's weird. Okay, I'll give another one here for you. Now, there is no such thing. Well, hold on. Before I tell you, focus on how when I say this next sentence, focus on how it makes you feel. This is important. 
So when I say this sentence, just focus on how you feel. Okay? There is no such thing as secondhand smoke. All right, how do you feel about that? You probably got defensive. All right, your guard probably went up a bit and you thought, well, of course there is. Why? Why did you have that reaction? Mm, because you've come to the conclusion that secondhand smoke kills. I'm telling you there's no such thing as secondhand smoke. And your first reaction is, of course, to be defensive about it. How interesting. Right? You've come to the conclusion that secondhand smoke is deadly. And I'm telling you there's no such thing. Hmm. And you get defensive because your instinct is to prove yourself right and never to listen to something that may prove you to be wrong. Okay, here's the story. Helena, Montana, 2003, the first city in the country to, excuse me, first country in the world to ban smoking in workplaces, bars, restaurants, and casinos. In the first, now you know what? Time out. Because I can already feel that people are super defensive right now. Let me ask you this first. Before I go on and explain myself, I apologize. Where did you first hear that secondhand smoke kills? And if you listen to the first hour of the show, you know exactly what I'm doing right now. Where did you learn that? Where did you first hear that secondhand smoke kills? Where did you first hear about the health dangers of secondhand smoke? Probably don't remember. Can you remember? Do you remember the first time you heard it? I don't. Probably like health class in high school or something. I don't know. Okay, so if you if you don't remember where you heard it for the first time, why do you believe it? Do you know anyone who's died from secondhand smoke? Do you know anyone who's had a heart attack from secondhand smoke? Do you know anyone who has lung cancer because of secondhand smoke? Now, let me be clear too. Smoking is bad for you. Smoking will kill you. Smoking will give you heart attacks and lung cancer and heart disease and all the rest. I'm talking about secondhand smoke. Do you know anyone who's, who's died because of secondhand smoke? Okay, no, you don't. You don't know anyone, yet you think it kills. How interesting. So you can't remember where you, came, where you learned that secondhand smoke kills. You don't know anyone who it's killed. Yet I tell you it doesn't exist and you still get defensive. I'm not being rude. I'm just saying this is how everyone reacts to this. Okay, so here's the story. Helena, Montana, 2003, smoking ban. The first six months after the ban, the rate of heart attacks in the city went down 60%. Then a judge struck down the ban, so now you're allowed to smoke everywhere again, and the rate of heart attacks jumped back up to its previous level. When that happened, three anti-smoking advocates, there were two local doctors and a professor at UC San Francisco. They wrote a study about this. This is the professor, quote, this striking finding suggests that protecting people from the toxins in secondhand smoke not only makes life more pleasant, it immediately starts saving lives. Wow. So the premise here is that P 
people were having heart attacks because of all because just people smoking in restaurants and, and sidewalks and workplaces and stuff. That wasn't allowed. People stopped having heart attacks. Then they were allowed to smoke again. People started having heart attacks again. Wow, striking, right? Saving lives, secondhand smoke causing heart attacks all over the place. Get rid of the secondhand smoke. No more heart attacks. Bring the secondhand smoke back. Everyone's dying. Unbelievable. That's all it took. Newspapers ran with it. New York Times, secondhand smoke kills. BBC, banning smoking in public places could prevent hundreds of deaths from heart disease. They just made that number up. All these groups made this claim, quote, even half an hour of secondhand smoke exposure causes heart damage similar to that of a habitual smoker. 30, 30 minutes, that's it, 30 minutes. There was a non-smoking group in Minnesota. They went even further. 30 seconds of exposure to secondhand smoke is akin to, uh, or excuse me, is, uh, is just as bad as if you are an actual smoker. 30 seconds Quote, even a small amount of exposure to secondhand smoke can cause a heart attack. Okay, obviously everyone went, uh, went loco and we started all these smoking bans all over the country. All right, so that's where it started. That's where the, the idea of secondhand smoke kills started. Helena, Montana, 2003. So why is this total bunk? One aspect of the scientific method is reproducibility. You need to be able to make an experiment and then be able to replicate it over and over and over again, right? The, the thesis has to be testable and repeatable. If you can't do that, it's not science. It's not. So they study the results of smoking bans in cities all around the world, not just in Helena, Montana. All around the world, zero effect from secondhand smoke, none. Again, no one denies that smoking is bad for you if you're a smoker. We're talking about secondhand smoke. Zero. So we have now 13 years of, uh, of studies, 13 years of, of uh, banning secondhand smoke. No effect. No effect on heart attacks or lung cancer or anything. Zero. So why was there such a dramatic reduction in, in Montana? Well, first of all, it's a tiny town, 68,000 people. In other similar sized towns where they did this, there was one town, there were only four heart attacks over four years. Four heart attacks in four years. That's not a proper study. So that means, let's say, so you can't even do this. There's one a year. Like you literally, so, so you could say, let's say in one year there was one heart attack and then they passed a smoking ban and the next year there's no heart attacks. You're going to say that the smoking ban dropped the heart attacks down to zero. Like no one, I mean like, it's not a proper study. That's, it's incomplete. So for the sake of time, I'll cut to the chase here. In every city where there's a smoking ban, zero statistical difference in heart attacks among people with secondhand smoke. Helena was a total fluke. Total fluke, small town where heart attacks just happened to go down when the smoking ban started and then happened to go back up when the smoking ban stopped. Just coincidence. Small town, not a proper sample size. You can't make huge conclusions based off of that. So we got decade of research, no effect of secondhand smoke. But we're now at the point that no one, like, it's done. <laughs> now, you may not be convinced. Let me tell you this. The people, the scientists I told you about earlier, the doctors earlier, who co-authored the, co the original study about secondhand smoke in Helena, they have come out and said, ah, uh, yeah, we were wrong. <laughs> They've come out and admitted they were wrong. They said, again, the sample size of Helena is too small. They didn't take into account the effect that the heart attacks rates were already going down. 
and they said it was just a fluke month, and that was it. It's not just heart disease. The Journal of the National Cancer Institute, hardly a pro-tobacco publication, the National Cancer Institute, said, quote, there's no clear link between passive smoking, so secondhand smoke, and lung cancer. Now, I don't like, I, I, I'm not, I don't smoke. I, I don't like smoking. I, I don't like being around it. I think it smells bad. It makes my eyes burn. You may have asthma. It may trigger your asthma. That's definitely could be true. Um, I don't like it. The libertarian property rights side of me says that a, a bar should decide whether or not they want to have smoking or ban smoking. It should be left up to them. But I enjoy going to places without having smoke around me. Uh, I prefer not to have smoke around me. It's fine. But it's not going to kill you. It won't hurt your heart. It won't cause lung cancer. Not going to kill you. And that's what this whole thing was based off of. It wasn't based off of, oh, you know, I don't like the smell of it. It was based off of secondhand smoke kills. It doesn't. Jonathan Swift, 1700, he said, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. So that when men come to be undeceived, when they learn the truth, it's too late. The joke is over and the tale hath had its effect. So now everyone's going to go to the grave thinking that secondhand smoke kills and it doesn't. The truth came limping after. one 888 Did your mind change about secondhand smoke through this conversation? Again, go back to where you first heard about secondhand smoke. I'm curious. I'm curious where you first heard about it. one 888 Probably don't even remember. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I think this is a worthy exercise for, for everything you believe. Go back. Where did I first think this? Where, where did I first hear that secondhand smoke was bad for you? And it's funny, the things that you can't even remember where you first heard is really something that you, you need to reconsider. And that's one. And the other one we talked about, uh, we do every Earth Day, we talk about how recycling is a total scam and you shouldn't do it. Uh, because that's all based off the false premise that we're out of landfill space. We're not <laughs> at all. <laughs> we're definitely, definitely not out of landfill space. It's absurd. Um, and cycling, uh, recycling costs a ton of money, ton of energy, total waste of time, no reason to do it whatsoever. But where'd you first hear that we needed to do it, that you need to recycle? It's not true. But why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep, we keep just, just, we, find, we come to an uh, opinion, a conclusion, and then we just run with it no matter what. It's wild. So that's why I think it's so important to go back to the where. Um, we don't need to talk anymore about smoking. I, I, I do think it's worth, though, talking about science for just a minute. Do not ever, and I, I can't stress this enough. I know in the last couple months, we've had a theme on the show of don't believe anything you read. The old standard used to be trust, but verify. Okay. So a newspaper or you see on TV, someone says something, you're like, Oh, I didn't know that. Let me check it out to see if that's true. 
nope. Now it's, that's not true. Let me check to see if maybe it is. Right? You, you have to assume everything is wrong that you read or see on TV. Just have to. That's where we are. And that's fine. But when it comes to science reporting, you can't believe a word. Like, just don't even do it. I'm, I'm not going to just don't do it. Unless it's a, repu- a super reputable science magazine. Do not listen to anything in the newspaper or on TV about anything related to science. They have no clue. No clue. So a college friend of mine as a scientist, and he sent over this cartoon. It's called The Science News Cycle. Uh, so this is how your anything you read online or read on the, in the newspaper or whatever about science, this is how it starts. It says, uh, start here. Your research. Conclusion. A is correlated with B. P equals 0.56, given C, assuming D, and under E conditions. That, your research, is translated by the university PR office. For immediate release, scientists find potential link between A and B, under certain conditions. Which is then picked up by newswire organizations. Scientists say A causes B. Which is then picked up by cable news. A causes B all the time. What will this mean for Obama? And then caught up by local four eyewitness news. What you don't know about A can kill you. More at 11. Eventually leading to your grandma. I'm wearing this tin hat to ward off A. (laughs) And it all started with something very specific. A is correlated with B. Given C, assuming D and under E conditions. Now, my buddy wrote me this and he said, well, obviously say this is a joke because no one would dare consider a p-value of 0.56 a correlation. Also, p is not an indicator of correlation, but rather a test to a hypothesis. So the author got it wrong. R squared would indicate correlation. Now, I have no idea what that means. Like, I have no clue what my buddy's talking about. But that's the point. Scientists do sciencey things. And then it gets so watered down that by the time it makes it to your local news promo, it's total trash. Because the promo, the promo, like the 10 minute promo we call it, or 10 second promo, that's just some TV producer who's never taken a science class in his entire life since ninth grade, has to fit something into 10 seconds and make it super sensational, right? So they take the path of least resistance. What you don't know about A could kill you. And that's how we get our information. And then you get big headlines written by just a headline writer based off of all this science research that was actually done that's way more um, like nuanced than, than a headline. It's so fascinating. So just never pay attention to science writing. And that includes secondhand smoke kills. That goes through so many layers of water down, water down, water down, water down. Just don't, don't believe it. I got 10 seconds, but um, we now know that the Fukushima reactor, like it hasn't leaked any, there's like no problems with the nuclear uh, meltdown or anything. And all the articles I read quote experts and if you do a little research on the experts they're all anti-nuclear activists obviously they're against they're going to say horrible things about it you just can't believe anything science related to read i I hate that that's the case but it's where we are mike slater show spread the word this is mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network
Slater. Hello, Slater. Uh, so there's a, there's a call for a, a progressive Tea Party or Democratic Party Tea Party movement or something, and we've seen uh, a little bit of it. Some angry town halls, yelling at congressmen, and uh, some people keeping Betsy DeVos out of a school in D.C. Right, blocking her from the entrance, even though she just went around the back. <laughs> like no no headline told you that, right? Do you remember that? It was like a week or so ago. Betsy DeVos kept from going inside school. And then dot, dot, dot for five minutes <laughs> until she walked around the back. And then have you, did you see a picture of it? There were like eight people there keeping her. From, anyway. The question though is what's, what's, well, we'll see. I mean, I, we don't know yet because it hasn't really happened like the Democratic Party Tea Party, but I can take a pretty good guess. What's going to be the difference between the conservative Tea Party of 2008 and the Democratic resistance of 2017 that's what they're calling it now the resistance what's the difference pretty simple the conservative tea party was looking to restore i'm gonna be bold here i'll just say it maybe you can think of another word i can give you the more pc word i guess but i'll just say the democratic party tea party is looking to destroy destroy what okay this is the important thing uh Conservatives in 2008 were looking to restore the Constitution, traditional values, family values, uh, economic principles, capitalism. We wanted to go back to the founding principles, which is why it was called the Tea Party, an ode to the founding of our country. The Democratic Tea Party is seeking to, again, I'll say destroy those things. I know that sounds dramatic, but I don't know. (laughs) I mean... I do know <laughs> just capitalism, the constitution, limited government. These are the principles that built this country and the democratic party, the progressive movement is in opposition to those things. They're not looking to restore anything about America. They're looking to destroy these different aspects of America. I guess if I was being more politically correct, um, I would say that the democratic tea party is looking to build something new, right? So, so conservatives are looking to restore Progressives are looking to build something new and different. Now, the problem with that is what they're building is actually not new. It's it's actually more ancient than America. Right? It's it's the American principles that are new and modern and final and perfect and there's nothing new you can do (laughs) and anything new is old just tweaked up a bit but it's still old let me let me see i calvin coolidge can explain this better than me Uh, i read this uh it comes up maybe once or twice a year uh, it's Calvin Coolidge's uh, address on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And he says this. He says, about the Declaration, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. It's often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we've had new thoughts and new experiences, which have given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. 
declaration. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. And if anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward. Toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. And those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They're reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than the revolutionary fathers. Right? So when I say, I'm a little bit wrong when I say that conservatives were looking to restore our founding principles. That's right. But when I say that Democrats are looking to build something new, they're not. It's, it's something older. <laughs> they, go, they want to go further back in time to when, as... Coolidge said, there was no equality, no rights to the individual, no rule of the people. And you're saying, well, Senator, what are you talking about? Like, like universal health care, for instance, that's new, that's modern. There was no universal health care before our founding. Yes, don't, though, get sidetracked by the, the window dressing, if you will. Universal health care is not a new concept. I mean, let me say it like this. Healthcare, as we know it, is a new concept. But what it really is, universal healthcare, it's really just, I want to force someone else to pay for something I want. That's all that is. And you just changed what the it is, right? Or, or what I want. You just changed the what I want. But, but forcing someone else to pay for something I want is nothing new. That's actually the oldest idea. The modern idea is you can't force someone else to give you money for something you want. That, that's, that's the new modern American principle. So when a progressive says, well, universal health care is a, a progressive modern idea. No. Healthcare, as we know it, is a new modern idea. But the ability or the desire to force someone else to pay for something you want, that is not new. That is not progressive. That is ancient. The progressive idea is in America, you can't force people to do things they don't want to do or pay for things they don't want to pay for. Big difference. Uh, let me quote one more line here just because I got a minute. Calvin Coolidge. No other theory is adequate to explain or comprehend the Declaration of Independence. It is the product of the spiritual insight of the people. We live in an age of science and of abounding accumulation of material things. These did not create our declaration. Our declaration created them. The things of the spirit come first. Unless we cling to that, all our material prosperity, overwhelming though it may appear, will turn to a barren scepter in our grasp. So um, we live in an age of science and of abounding accumulation of material things. These did not create our declaration. Our declaration created them. So progressives think that things are so great now, right? And that's why, like, we're so prosperous. We're so wealthy. Such a high standard of living, blah, blah, blah. And that's why socialized medicine, like right now, we need socialized medicine today so that everyone can have all these great things, right? That's why Bernie Sanders says, and I think we talked about this two weeks ago, that uh, we're the only country in the world without universal health care. 
right? So we're the only country, which means we need it. But he's got it backwards. We have these things. We have healthcare because of the Declaration of Independence, because of freedom, because of free markets and free people, because of capitalism. So we don't need to run away from those things. It's, it's those things that made it so even talk about socialized medicine. That could even be a concept. Free markets and free people created our overwhelming prosperity and abundance. So we need to stick with that. We need to restore free markets and free people. That's what we got to get back to. If we do something different, if we do something more ancient with no free markets and no free people, then that idea of healthcare as we know it today goes away. And universal healthcare won't even, won't even be a possibility. We have to stick with the free markets and free people. And that was, the, that was what the Tea Party was all about in 2008. It's not what they're going to be doing uh, for the next four years. They're all, I just think they're always going to be fighting for something older and more ancient than America. That's backwards. It's going backwards. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Signing Crusaders. I know it was a week ago, and uh, we're all past this, but I'm sure this will all happen again. The same kind of idea. Uh, so we've talked before about how in America, we uh, or our culture today is to out outrage each other. Right. It's all about being more outraged than anyone else. So if something happens, and you know, I'm, I'm outraged by that. And I'm way more outraged. I'm the most outraged. I can't even. And that, that was the whole Trump's executive order thing. That was a good example of that. And then a microcosm of that was the whole like Uber. I'm outraged by Trump's executive order. Lyft saying, I'm way more outraged. And then Airbnb jumps in. I'm the most outraged. <laughs> what, 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 what is going on here? So the opposite of that, or, or similarly, I should say, is we're supposed to be out blown away by things that we think society tells us we're supposed to be blown away by. Right. So society tells us that Amy Schumer is the funniest person in history. And Lena Dunham is the greatest voice of our generation. And Beyonce is a goddess beyond all comprehension. So when Beyonce performed at the Grammys last week, it was, I died. Right. It wasn't, Oh, like that was, that was enjoyable or fine. It was, Oh, I can't breathe. I, I'm, I'm crying. My bae. She slayed. I am nothing to her. Oh, right. It's like, come on people. It's, it's interesting how we, uh, we work, right? We work like that. Right. So I went to Huffington post last week and I, I looked up, uh, articles about it and then the headlines are all like, Oh, Beyonce slayed the grandma. And all the comments are like, um, and it was just fine. Like, (laughs) 
Uh, she was just mostly naked with 50 singers and dancers, and it was okay. Can we stop the Beyonce worship? It's the same thing she always does, but you guys act like it's earth-shattering. I'm sure she's lovely and all, but I don't get the near beatification of this woman. She's talented, but in the 90s, she'd be just another R&B singer. Not trying to hate, but the media acts like she's a god, right? So it goes on because we're supposed to be outblown away by each other, by, by things that we think society says we should be outblown away by. Anyway, I, I wish my, my son, he's only four months. I wish he was older than I could share. Um, I could like watch this with him. And I, I just hope he'd be like, what, what's... And, and I could teach him the difference between idolizing a singer versus someone who does something truly admirable. I got three minutes. Let me share a quick story. Uh, our U.S. Grant story of the day, the Battle of Shiloh, beginning of the war, Civil War, April 6th and 7th, 18, excuse me, yeah, 1862, uh, Tennessee, Southwest Tennessee, Grant's first major battle. It was his second leading a large number of men, but this was his first major one. 60,000 Union soldiers, 40,000 Confederates. The night before the battle, the two camps slept within a mile of each other. At the end of the two days of fighting, 2,000 men killed on each side, 16,000 wounded, 4,000 captured or missing. Now, we, we can't even comprehend what that battlefield must have looked like. Bloodiest battle in American history until the one next year and then the one the year after that. But this was the first sign that the war was not going to be over in a week or two like people thought. But there's a detail of this battle, Shiloh, that, uh, that we should know. It was the end of the first night. Now, the Union army was pushed back to the river, not where they wanted to be. The Confederates were winning. Now, the Union guys, they thought this was actually going to be a pretty easy fight. They just came after, came out of a, of a battle that they won pretty simply. So they were overconfident. So that first night, defeated, started to rain. Light at first, and then just a drenching downpour. So just imagine, best you can, thousands of wounded men laying on the battlefield. Desperate, hopeless excruciating pain, varying stages of death. And 4,000 dead. It's cold, pitch black. It's not like there's lights on anywhere. Surrounded by other wounded and screaming or dead people from either side. What, and then pouring rain. What a miserable night that had to be. Major Grant with an injured ankle because his horse slipped in the mud and fell on his ankle. So he's throbbing in pain himself. The end of the first night, he had the opportunity to sleep in his dry log hut. But he chose to sleep outside, in the rain, in the battlefield, amongst his men. William Tecumseh Sherman found Grant around midnight. He went to the log hut first. He wasn't there. He's like, where's Grant? Went searching for him, found him around midnight. He had a lantern in one hand sitting under a tree, leaned up against the trunk of the tree, a lantern in one hand and a signature cigar between his teeth. And he had his hat slouched over his face to keep the rain out. And Sherman wasn't sure what Grant was going to do. Are we going to retreat in the morning? Live to fight another day? Get out of here? Sherman said, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And Grant replied, "Mm mm-hmm. Lick him tomorrow, though. And there was his answer. Somehow he got his men back in order tomorrow. They were able to reclaim what they lost the first day. And uh, then the Confederates retreated and the Unions 
Union side, you know, won that battle. The moral of that story for me is that Grant chose to sleep in the rain on the battlefield with his men. And still, amongst all that, refused to give up. That's true leadership right there. Please like the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We can hang out all week. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.